Do you mind sharing? Yeah, would y'all welcome Tim with me? Good morning. Muy buenos días. Que Dios les bendiga ricamente. May God richly bless you this morning. How good it is for us, Patty and Daniel and I, to be back here with you. Over the last 12 to 14 years, we've been here a number of times and to share very specifically somewhat of a, of a, my testimony of a very important, salient um, moment in my life. But first, I want to thank you as a congregation for your support of us over all these years. It is deeply appreciated. We have been missionaries with international ministries for 35 years. Five years before that, we worked with the Presbyterian Church in eastern Kentucky. So over these 40 years of cross-cultural ministries, I have been amazed at God's guidance following his call, but also those times in ministry and in life, when God spoke to us, God spoke to me in a very special way that changed, that changed how things were understood on my part and what I was to do. I want to take us back very quickly to March of 1990. We were 10 years in the Dominican Republic from 1985 till 1995. And that day I was visiting back in the Dominican because we were in Connecticut on home assignment, about ready to go back to the Dominican. And I was there visiting in a very, very poor bate where the poorest of the poor live in the Dominican Republic, Haitians who owed their souls to the company stores, sugarcane cutters, and there in a bienvenido, in a bate, very dear to my heart. And with one of the leaders who was in one of my training classes, you see, three years before that, we had to go up to another bate and get the small Baptist church out of that bate before the government forces went in to move everybody and separate the church. We were able to do that and bring them down to a place in Bienvenido. And I was back visiting there. And I visited Andres and Madame Macrin. And their three children, the smallest one, Stephanie, I had the privilege of doing the presentation up in that Maimon Bate three years before that. But she was very, very sick. And we had seen her a couple times with medical missions, even in the months before this. We prayed with her. We left some money so that she could get medications. And Andres told us how he had taken her three, four times to clinics. All they would do is give them a prescription. They had to spend everything they had on that. Stephanie was not well at all. 
Two days later, before we left the Dominican on that trip, news came that Stephanie had died. Andres and Madame had seven children. Five of them died before the age of five. And the poorest of the poor. God spoke to me in a very special way. I was involved more in leadership training with all these small churches. But Stephanie's death was not at all necessary. She was not attended well because of the situation there in the Dominican Republic. And through much prayer and action, just in the next month, I was put in contact with special groups and people so that when we went back to live just three months later, God made it possible for us, in addition to the other ministries, to begin a primary health care initiative that we called Fountain of Life. For that bate and for 15 other communities, a wonderful ministry that to this day has blossomed into a ongoing primary health care initiative that has saved countless of lives and a hospital now in La Romana. The premier hospital of that part of the Dominican Republic that has over 350 doctors and nurses working there. It was through that crisis that God spoke and that I reacted to what I was seeing and what I was doing. I am very thankful that I still continue cross-cultural ministry to which God called me to some 50 years ago. I still love equipping my dear brothers and sisters in the faith in Mexico and throughout Latin America. I still learn and I grow, especially in relation to God and his mission and what he is all about. And I still grow in my walk with the Lord. And much of that growth has to do with people like Andres, Estefanie, and those with whom I have worked over the years. Next month in October, I return to the Dominican Republic because we are starting a new cohort for our masters in theological education online. I will be in that little community of Bienvenido, which has changed quite a bit, to preach three times in a harvest festival. A church now of almost a 100 active members, two are going to be participating in the master's program. They were young people when I was there, but they have gone to the university. 
And I will be there to celebrate with them. And I celebrate what they have meant to me. As I learn so much from this group of Haitians working in the Dominican Republic. And what true commitment to the Lord was despite the circumstances. A willingness to give far and above what we can imagine for the poorest of the poor and also a real love and desire to reach out in prayer for others wherever the need was. I thank our Lord for all of these people who have meant so much to me And through whom God has worked in my life and others. Thank you. Friends, join me in prayer. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That is who you are, God. And we sit in the reality of that right now. We breathe in the hope and the strength and the promise of those names. And we recall right now ways in which you've been those things to us. And we praise you, Jesus. As we remember those times that you were those things to us, we bring to mind those parts of our lives and those stories of others where you are needed as way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. We ask you to break the chains of hopelessness and oppression. We ask you to bring healing to those needing it. We ask you to make a way where a way is needed. We ask you to be a light in the darkness that we carry. And we ask you to help us to be lights in the darkness of the world. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. I'd like to invite Rebecca Takahashi to share her story with us. You're not bringing the dogs? You're not bringing the dogs? No, I'm not. They're fine. Hey, y'all. I'm Rebecca Takahashi. Um, I've been attending FBC for about, actually, two years, I think, as of next month. So I don't think I've gotten a chance to get to know everyone, but I hope I do very soon. Uh, I'm very blessed to be able to live and work here in the city of Pasadena. Um, I'm also very blessed today because my parents actually are here as well to come hear my testimony. Um, And it's also my dad's birthday, so happy birthday, Daddy. And just prayers for them that I don't embarrass them. They tried their best, you guys, so, you know, give them a pound on the back when you see them. Um, So much of my testimony, actually, um, you're about to hear, actually centers around my journey uh, to finding a community of faith that I never thought would or could exist. Growing up, I was always curious about how the world around me worked, uh, with actually a very healthy dose of skepticism. I feel like my first words were probably, why, and no. A big part of my childhood actually was also church. My family and I went to church basically every Sunday. 
Faith is and was always something present in my life, with my mother, Sylvia, as our tether to bring us back if we wandered too far. Which brings me to my story. As a child, God was always love. We were all made in his image. John 3.16 said he loved the world so much that he gave his only son for us, that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish but live forever. To me, it meant that no matter the color of our skin, if we were rich or poor, or came from other nations, we all had a seat at the table. As I got older and angsty in my teen years, my skepticism grew more and more on my community of faith at the time. The pulpit began to sound more like a political rally. The table seemed to be getting smaller as it became clear that there wasn't a seat for everyone if they happened to be gay, Muslim, an unwed woman, or otherwise unwelcome by the Christian community. If this was the table they intended to set, I decided then and there to get up and walk away. For most of my young adult life, I only went to church on the mandated holidays of Easter and Christmas, mainly at the request of my mother. We had some turbulence during my teen years about this topic, but to her credit, she heard me and granted me the grace to find my own path on my own time. It wasn't until my mid-twenties in the weird city of Austin, Texas, did I decide to come back to the table. Interestingly enough, I worked for a, I was an intern at a nonprofit uh, whose mission actually happened to be a watchdog of the religious right and the growing movement of Christian nationalism in the state of Texas. I learned a lot about Texas in one year. My boss, actually, who was the deputy director of this organization, also happened to be the deacon at a church which called itself University Baptist Church. At the time, Baptist was a trigger word for me. My version of Baptist didn't really sound like his, so I was intrigued. It took some time for me to actually get connected with the church, but when I did, I knew my mother's prayers had been answered. I found a seat at the table. My first contacts of the church actually happened to be their associate pastors named Amelia and Becca. Wait, wait, what? Woman pastors? What is up with that? I then got to know members of our congregation who actually were retired professors, nuclear families, gay couples with and without kids, college students, and even an atheist. This was a place where everyone had a seat at the table and were eager to make room for more. But at this table, conversation was far from light. Here, my skepticism about religion and American Christianity could actually be explored. I didn't read the Bible for a long time, so I started to read it as an adult uh, and always left with more questions than answers after sermons or our small group meetings. I remember reading Love Wins for the first time and almost kind of feeling guilty for sort of resonating with its message since it blew up the simple notion of what 10-year-old Rebecca was taught about life and death. Being in a community open to inquiry, to reading the Bible critically while also respecting its divinity, to embrace life-giving words, deeds, and relationships, to know more about your beliefs from examining them deeply. And that's part of why I'm here with you all today. This community is a little bit similar, but also different than my Austin church home. Like Good Baptists, we forge our own community on our own terms, on our own time. I see the open table here of different faces from all over. So thank you, church, for giving me a seat, and I hope you can continue to love, challenge, and learn from one another.
Thank you. Choir and praise team. I uh, get to introduce our next speaker and preacher this morning. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, Rebecca, for sharing with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, our next person is somebody I met really early in my time here. Uh, it was up in the South Side room. It was during, I think, my second interview as I was looking at the lead pastor job here. And the deacon body were one of the groups that got to have a conversation together during that interview phase. And one of the people around that table, I think just like one or two to my left, was Jen Young. Uh, Jen is on our deacon body, is one of our uh, leaders in the congregation. And I remember in that meeting, in our discussion, you offering just like a little bit of vulnerability by your own story, but I felt some immediate resonance. And so uh, her and Brian are in all kind of leadership places in our church, and we're really grateful for them. And so when we thought about who we could invite to share some of their stories, I wanted to hear a little bit more of Jen's, and so I asked if she would share. Um, and so I'm going to ask if you would please welcome Jen Young to come share her testimony with us. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's Pastor John Jay just introduced me. I'm Jen. Um, just want to point out that Brian and I are expecting our first child in just a few weeks. Um, thank you. I only say that because right now I'm a hot, sweaty mess, and I can't promise that I will know everything that's about to come out of my mouth. Okay. Thank you. Um, so when John Jay asked me to think about my story... Um, it took a little bit and I realized that I need to sort of think about where I came from, what I went through and then where I'm at now. And so I, I sort of split my story up into four distinct time frames. Um, the first being growing up in Pennsylvania. So, um, if you're not familiar with Pennsylvania, I grew up in Amish country um, I am not Amish, my family's not Amish, but uh, it's a very unique place if, if you've ever been there. Um, and then I went to college uh, about five hours away from home. So my first time frame is growing up in Pennsylvania. My next time frame is my college years. From there I went on to grad school in Texas, so that's my third time frame. And then from grad school, I moved out to California, and so that's my fourth time frame, and that's where I'm, I'm currently at. Um, so thinking about my story, um, thinking about what I learned during those different time frames and what I'm currently learning now and how um, a lot of it's changed, actually. Um, and so... I guess um, I'm going to give you the overarching theme of what my story is and then kind of break that down. So um, really what I've found over the, those four time frames and as I've grown from a, a young person to a slightly older person, um, that really the theme of my story has been opening up my worldview to the experiences of others while still holding on to Christ during all of those different times and different experiences and trying to figure out what all of that means. Um, so I start with where I grew up. I absolutely love where I grew up. Um, it's very different from here. Uh, my family did not go to church. Uh, I'd say that I was raised with Christian-like values, but... Um, 
And I was involved in church activities because of various friends that had invited me along the way. Um, but my, my family, we didn't go to church. Um, and it was uh, freshman year of high school, actually, where I uh, accepted Christ. And um, again, that was because of different uh, involvement in church activities through friends. And so at that time, I got involved with a church because my friend and her family went there. Um, and so I kind of forged my, my path through the Christian journey a bit on my own. Um, my family was not unsupportive, but they just weren't necessarily a part of it. Um, and so... I'll get, I'll come back to in just a moment what I learned during that time. Um, but once I, once I went off to college, I went to a Christian liberal arts school. Um, and there I was, um, around a lot of people that thought the same way that I did, had the same sort of beliefs. Um, and I came across a few people that differed in their beliefs, um, Christian beliefs. Um, but I wasn't really receptive to hearing that. I, I felt very rooted in what I've, what I learned, um, in the various church activities growing up. I felt very rooted in what I learned from my family. Um, where I grew up, as I mentioned, I love it, but it is a somewhat closed minded community. Um, and so I, I learned some, I'll say some biases that I have since lost um, after moving out and realizing that there's maybe a little bit more to the world around me than what was just in that that small community. Um, so really what happened was I went to grad school, and that's when I started experiencing people from different backgrounds, um, different strokes of Christianity, different religions, people who didn't even care about religion, people from different countries. And so it really, um, it opened my eyes to a world that I wasn't really used to before that. Um, and during that time, I really started questioning what, what did I believe and why did I believe it? Um, and so looking back, I realized that the type of Christianity that I grew up in um, was pretty fundamentalist. And if you're familiar with that term, then you know probably what that means. Um, there's a lot of teaching that goes along with that sort of mindset. Um, and some of the, the teachings that were ingrained in me that I've had to wrestle with um, is that Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts. Um, if you do the wrong thing, God will be angry and he'll punish you. Um, the core of Christianity is getting to heaven, so you better be good, but it's really all about you being good and the rest of it doesn't really matter, and different teachings like that. Um, and when I was younger, I was like, okay, this is this is fine. I mean, it's a little nerve-wracking, but I can deal with it. Um, but yeah, when I got when I got to grad school and I started experiencing other people and other ways of thinking... I had to think about some of these teachings and wonder, were they really correct? Is that really who God is? Is he an angry God that is making sure I'm checking off certain things on a list and not checking off other things on a different list? 
Um, and so I had to wrestle with that. And I think that that wrestling carried on throughout my grad school years and came with me to California, where I've experienced other people and other um, life experiences. And I'd have to say that I think some of the things that I've I've learned in the past about Christianity were just plain wrong. Um, and I've had to wrestle with feeling anger towards the whole of Christianity. Um, why would I be taught something that wasn't correct? And why would people continue to um, teach others that? So... Sometimes uh, during during grad school years and as I moved to California, I was kind of put off a little bit by mainstream evangelical Christianity um, because that's that's what I came out of. And and I felt like so much of it was wrong from what I was learning about um, others around me and, and from different churches and small groups I was involved with at the time. So. I guess where I'm at now is I'm still a work in progress. I think we could probably all say that. But I'm really continuing to learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, and it's not just a list that you check off. Um, it's more than that. It's learning how to love like Jesus loves. It's learning how to read the Bible in a historical and cultural context and not just necessarily cherry picking a verse because it sounds good and thinking it means one thing and not really looking at what else is around it to understand what it, it does actually mean. Um, I've been learning about being certain about all the answers. I thought when I was younger, I knew everything. <laughs> Didn't all of us, right? Um, and I thought I knew everything about Christianity. I believed everything that I was taught to be true. Um, and I'm realizing I don't actually have all the answers. And I'm okay with that because I think God calls us to dig deeper. And sometimes just accepting something on surface level isn't really enough. So... Um, I've been really learning to to dig deeper and really try to figure out what does this mean. Um, so where I'm at in my journey is I'm continuing to learn what does it mean to care for others? What does it mean to care for the world around us? Um, what does it mean to be part of a community, whether that's a church community or a neighborhood community or whatever the case may be, and how all that relates to following Jesus? So uh, one of the things I've really appreciated about being here in this church for the past couple years with Pastor John Jay is the teachings of things like bringing heaven down to earth and... Um, making our inner circle larger and wider. And other um, things that we've learned throughout the various sermon series has really resonated with me. And right now in my position, I actually am a professor at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, so I get to work with students at the college age where I think a lot of them are probably in a similar place to where I was um, just a few years ago really trying to figure out what is it do I believe and why do I believe it and maybe expanding beyond just something that their parents or their pastor told them growing up and to really dig deeper. So um, I think that that's, that's where God has brought me. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to be at this point, even though I'm still learning and still growing. Thank you.
That was a great testimony. Okay, good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians, 5th chapter, 11th to 21st verse. The ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to our consciences. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we're being, uh, if we beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. James, that is uh, one of my favorite, most cherished pieces of scripture, and uh, I appreciate your care with it this morning. Hey, everybody, I'm Pastor John Jay. I get to share a little bit of my story this morning. I'm super appreciative of Tim and Rebecca and Jen and resonate in different ways with all of your stories. I recognize, too, that the ability to tell your own story well is in part the ability to pull out the meaning of the life that you are living. It takes a certain amount of introspection, and I think it takes a certain amount of humility. Uh, I love this language of being in process. I, I keep coming back to that. There's a pastor, I won't mention who it is, but real famous on the TV and on the radio, also from Texas. And uh, I remember reading an interview with him. Church is in, you know, the tens of thousands come to church. And he said in the interview, and asked kind of what he was learning, he said, I haven't really changed my belief since I was a kid. And I thought, what? That sounds terrible. Because I remember what I thought as a kid. I mean, Paul says, right, like when you were a kid, you thought like a kid. And then as you grow up, you put away childish things and your faith grows. And so that language of it being in process, of us keeping an openness to where God is taking us. I think I heard that in each of these stories and I'm feeling it in my own too. Whenever the early church talked about following Jesus, they talked about it as a people of the way. That there was this kind of path that you were on of this journey. And so you've heard from these three folks, and I'll share a little bit from my own life, that journey as this move forward. Uh, it was hard for me to choose a moment. 
And I could have told my testimony or story based on, like, for instance, the books in my life that have been guides for me, the big thinkers and ideas and the moment that they appeared to me and how they carried me on to the next phase of understanding who God is. And you've heard some of these folks, uh, Reverend Will Campbell and his book, Writings on Race and Reconciliation is one of those, uh, William Stringfellow and his book, Strangers and Other Aliens in a Strange Land, uh, I've been deeply influenced in the last couple of years by Willie Jennings' writings on uh, the Christian imagination, theology, and race. We've all got these kind of influences on our lives. You heard family is a big part of that, the faith that we receive. Uh, I was in grad school whenever uh, I went to seminary in Duke Divinity School in the East Coast. And I thought I knew what I was doing when I got to school. I had a good sense of what my life was going to be about. And... School is this place, if you go to seminary, where, and I'm looking, you know, we've got Champ here, we've got uh, Ken Fong's in the room, other people who've been to seminary who've worked on mastering divinity. I always say that phrase with some amount of, like, it feels weird to say that we've mastered divinity. But you go to school, and that's the title that I sought for three years. And uh, my dad has a master's and a PhD as well. I've told you some of my own father's story. He came from a very rough, very poor background in the working South. Um, and the life of the mind was the space where he was able to rise above his station in that kind of Alexander Hamilton language. That uh, learning is accessible if you have enough desire and willingness. And so he would kind of dig into school, dig into advanced degrees as a way of doing that. And I grew up sort of on the cusp of lower and middle class, depending on what season of life I was in. And I thought like the same sort of thing. If I can get this learning, if I can become a master at something, then that will sort of move me up in a station. And Going to seminary is a great way to exercise pride and hubris. You put like a 20-something-year-old in these master's classes with a bunch of other really self-assured 20-something-year-olds, and you ask them all to think big thoughts about God, and we will do that. We're going to think big thoughts about God while we think big thoughts about ourselves. Yeah. And at the end, the whole point of this is so that we can do it better than the people that we went to church with. And then we can get just better theories and better ideas and better skills and rhetoric. And we can begin to posture ourselves like ministers so that we can convince the world of our worldview, the way we understand faith and culture. And it is just, it's intoxicating to get all of this learning and power. Halfway through school, I sort of realized I don't want to be a professor. That wasn't the path for me. Turns out I'm called to be a preacher. And so my all of my schooling kind of focused in on the craft of preaching and being able to interpret well. And there are two events that happened to me in grad school I want to share with you today. Uh, two things that radically changed me. And I believe in a lot of meaningful ways you are receiving what I learned in this season all the time. So in that kind of incubator of of hubris and of pride, of knowing everything or wanting to know everything. And the point of it is just sharpening your ability to convince. And the ability to convince is also the ability to apply power to people in such a way that they move left or right according to however you think they should be moving left or right. Uh, I encountered 
two big life-changing events. One, I've mentioned before, but I'm going to mention it again. I have this friend, her name is Christina, and she was in one of my advanced preaching classes. So there was like 10 of us in this class. And we were the ones who we were deeply committed to the practice of preaching. Not that early preaching class where there were like 200 students. These were the 10, right? I was part of it. And this woman, Christina, was in this class, and she was a brilliant, brilliant preacher out of the Methodist tradition. But Christina had absorbed what a lot of us absorbed, which is that God is deeply interested in our perfection, in our bringing God our report cards full of A's. And I always remember when she would get up to preach in this little bitty class, it was like in a downstairs classroom, there was just a few of us with the professor, and uh, we would each preach a sermon to this little group of folks that I was like blown away by her, her rhetoric. I was blown away by her ability to craft language and to take me into the story. But she disappeared from class for a few weeks toward the late end of the semester, and we weren't sure what had happened. I had a couple of other classes with her. She wasn't in those either. I knew some of her close friends. Uh, Bonnie is another one of these students who I looked up to through seminary as another brilliant preacher, and Bonnie and Christina were best friends. And when Christina showed back up in class, she was able to make up the sermon that she missed. And so we all sat down and we get ready to listen to Christina as she shares this sermon. And when she stands up behind this little bitty pulpit in this little bitty classroom and starts to speak, she sounds very different. And she tells us the truth. And guess what, folks? I was not used to hearing preachers tell me the truth, especially the truth about their own life. I imagine that there are um, there was a, a twinge of How do I make my story even better or even bigger or even more important? I feel that all of the time. How do I kind of smooth off those rough edges? Well, Christina came and just, she shared. She opened up a kind of vulnerability in preaching I'd never, ever seen before. Turned out she was gone because she had been so depressed from this moving toward perfection that she needed to go into the hospital and take care of herself because that depression was moving towards self-harm. And... What she learned in this hospital space as she is kind of stripped of all of those accolades and all of her ability to perform is this open position, this open posture of receiving from God, no longer earning anything she couldn't. And what she did when she came back is she told us that story. And preaching at its essence is paying attention where God is active in our lives. It's like Mary Oliver says, instructions for living a life or pay attention and be astonished and tell about it. And sometimes that astonishment is not simply joy, but it's just the like incredible weightiness of life. So she tells this story about how empty hands are what God has given her in this season. So I've got this over here. I've been practicing being like the big guy for Jesus, the important learning master of divinity. And here's my friend who I looked up to who had found a voice in preaching that was about going all the way down into the pit with Christ. Totally new for me. The other thing that happened while I was in school is uh, I was really committed to being able to serve. And you have to take all of these like continuing ed learning and uh, embedded internships. And I didn't want to travel 30 minutes, an hour away because I had a family. I had a kid. And by the end of seminary, uh, both of our children were with us. And so I was hoping that I could stay close to home. There was this place right around the street from where we lived that was a nonprofit. And I got connected with them. It was called Reality Ministries. And I've told you a little bit about this too. But reality is the space uh, where I found out what church is supposed to look like. 
It wasn't a church, but it was connected to a lot of faith communities in the area. Um, and here's what reality was. Um, it was the space built on the L'Arche model, Jean Vanier, uh, the late leader of the L'Arche communities, um, where people with and without developmental disabilities were put together in community. And then they were asked to, to be friends, to be present to one another, to eat together, to worship together, to study together, to play together, to dance together, to party together. And I'd never really been in this kind of environment, particularly because one of the versions of faith that I was given is that it needed to be orderly. Guys, we have an order of worship that is timed out to the 30 seconds, right? Because, well, that's just because we want to be good planners. But order has been a big part of religion for a long time, keeping things in their right place. And if you want to invite any kind of like chaos into a space, bring folks in who just aren't as interested in your schedule. Um, and so I was with this community. It turned out the people who were leading it were uh, Jeff and Susan McSwain and their team. These were folks who used to work in Young Life, and then they had all gotten fired because they turned out they believed in Jesus a little bit too much. And uh, they were letting in to these Young Life groups folks who didn't follow all the do's and don'ts. And uh, so they in Chapel Hill were all let go all at once. And they started this community in Durham that dug in deeper to their deepest convictions. Uh, Here's what I learned there. I had always thought that to be a good Christian, and especially to be a good Christian leader, that one of my jobs was to fix people. Kind of like a doctor, right? And as soon as I can assess what is wrong with you, then you and I can get about the work of transformation. And when you present yourself in a congregation, uh, this version of pastoring means that immediately I'm looking for cracks and faults and brokenness and sin. And as soon as we find them together, then we figure out the next 10 steps to get you back to perfection. Well, I'd already been shown by my friend Christina that that wasn't going to work, but I still kind of believed it. But what happens when you're presented with a community? We're fixing things is not the point, but simply being with one another. I think this is part of the problem with uh, issues of like deep systemic poverty and homelessness is when we enter into relationship with folks who are in a different space on the economic spectrum, there is this assumption that our goal is to get them up to where we are, to fix them. It is very difficult to be in community, to be in relationship with somebody else when your primary way of being with them is to fix them. And so in this reality ministries, we were presented with all of these friends who actually weren't interested in being fixed. They were just interested in being welcomed. I didn't realize how exhausted I was of trying to fix myself so that God would let me in. What reality did in those years that I was there is it taught me a way to kind of push the doors open wider and wider for folks who had not been able to experience Christian community, had not heard that God was for them. And if they were ever in a church, they were treated as suspects for disturbing the order and scheduling of things. What I learned in holding those doors open was that there was enough room for me to walk through as well. And this changed everything. 
It brought about in the same way that Christina's sermon did that day, a kind of humility. Where my, my purpose wasn't to see everybody as a problem to solve, but as an opportunity to meet Christ in disguise. I spent, I don't know, how many years were we there, Corey? Three? We were there for the three years that we were in Durham, and I've stayed in community with these folks for all of that time. Jean Vanier and Stanley Hauerwas, Hauerwas was at Duke while I was there, wrote a book about this kind of ministry. I just want to read you a quote from it that resonates with me. Does the church really believe in the holiness of people with disabilities? Some people believe the church should do good things for the poor, but do we believe in their holiness? I get upset when people tell me, you're doing a good job. I'm not interested in doing a good job. I'm interested in a big vision of community and living in a gospel-based community with people, with and without disabilities. We are brothers and sisters together, and God is calling us through Christ from a pyramidal society to become a body. There's a certain version of religion that invites a kind of self-loathing. Not just an inner critique of the spaces we are not yet living into the deepest versions of our beliefs, but that we are not enough for God, for God's love. There's this big banner in the gym at reality that still hangs there that said, and it was like, you know, about the size of this organ set of organ pipes over here that said, um, I am for you. And it was a thing that they would say every time they would meet together over anyone who was in that space. This language from God that I am for you. Not for things that you've done and not for achievements, but simply because of who you are. Not because of who you could be even, but who you are. One of those great commandments that Jesus talks about is loving your neighbor as yourself. And I spent a ton of time trying to figure out how to love others better in seminary, but I needed to learn how to love myself. And these friends, Christina and these friends at Reality, taught me what it looks like to love myself because they loved themselves. We'd show up at these events. And you were, like the only time I've ever sensed this, you were allowed to just be yourself. No posturing. There's something missing from these friends. They just had not learned the thing that we all learn as adults, which is we are all pretending all the time. And it is exhausting. It's why when you get especially like a bunch of white people together and ask them to dance, it doesn't look like anyone is free. It looks like you just, you know what I mean? Because there's this sense of like, we are not free. But in that space... And that's basically one of the only places that I felt comfortable moving my body and dancing. Because they didn't seem to care. They would have this thing called the Kings and Queens Dance once a year. It was like their prom and homecoming. And you would form this tunnel and everybody would come in in like tuxes and dresses. And we would all dance like, like, well, like God was watching. But like God was into the awkwardness. There's one girl who was in uh, junior, senior year of high school who volunteered there. Uh, came from kind of a middle upper class family. She said, this is the only place 
where I feel like I can be myself. What had happened to church that it felt so different from that? Where you couldn't be here without being something else. I wanted, I have wanted since I left reality. I've been chasing this vision of a church, of a community, where I could just show up in the fullness of my being. As God has created me to be. And friends, I am quite strange. I don't know if you've noticed. So are you, though. So are all of us. It turns out God does not meet us at the side of our perfection or our achievements. God meets us in the moment of our fragility, often in our weakness, in the path of descent, which we call the cruciform way. One last story before I pray. This is just a window into who... I've been able to become because of these influences. When we were in reality, it was early in our marriage. Uh, I don't know how long we've been married. I mean, we've been married 16 years now, so five or less. We had one kid. Ruthie wasn't yet born. And in the early years of marriage, things are tricky and they're complicated and you're trying to grow up and you're not the same person you were the year before. I remember going on a trip with them for a week and I don't even remember all the circumstances, but there was this kind of fracturing that had happened on my way out of town where we'd gotten in some kind of early marriage argument that uh, felt like an existential crisis. And I remember sitting down on the bus next to this friend uh, from reality who had Down syndrome. And I just remember sitting there and I didn't know what to say because I didn't know how I was feeling. I'm on this trip as a leader and uh, I'm at seminary, so I'm supposed to have everything together. And I just felt exposed. And I had practiced hiding in those moments, emotionally and spiritually. But I was with these folks who, like, hiding wasn't really a thing. And so there's this guy next to me. His name is Luke. And it's like he just knew that something was off. And he just put his hand on my shoulder. And he's very hard to understand when he would talk unless you'd spent some time with him and learned how to listen. But he asked if I was okay. I don't know how he knew that I wasn't. Always remembered that. This moment when Christ showed up to me in the most surprising of circumstances. What I carry with me from that season, what I carry into this space with us week after week, is trying to create the possibilities for you to show up. To fully show up to God and to one another. I'm asking you to trust one another that that is possible, that there are people here that you could call friend in such a way that if you wanted to dance, no one is going to laugh unless you would like to laugh with them. And if you don't understand the version of faith that is being spoken, uh, that that is okay. And that your being here is not preconditioned on you changing who you are but only seeing the depth of who Christ is. These are the things that I learned from these friends in their moments of vulnerability. I want to just say thank you one more time to Rebecca and Jen and Tim for inviting us into your own vulnerability, to tell the truth of your stories. And I want to invite all of you. You see on the front of your bulletin, it says, I'm going to borrow yours, Hans. It says here from Lucille Clifton, They ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep remembering mine. 
where is God in your life? Where are those spaces where you feel exposed because the truth is starting to kind of leak out despite your best intentions to keep it hidden? What are the angles that God is working in your life to expose you to the light of the deep truth that you are welcome? Learn how to tell that story with some kind of conviction because it is yours, hard won by effort and history. And we will be better for hearing it because we love you and know that you love us. I'm deeply grateful that this is our community of faith and I'm deeply grateful for the stories that you have shared In the weeks ahead, what we're going to do together is we're going to be telling uh, a set of teachings on kind of the foundations of faith. Uh, These are built on what is a normal ordination path in the American Baptist Church. So we're going to look each week at a topic, God, Jesus, Spirit, Trinity, eschatology, sin, salvation. But the first one I wanted to start with was our stories. And so next week, we'll dive in into the deep end together. Friends, would you pray with me as we continue in worship? God of time and space, of birth and death, of becoming and undoing, we invite you now to pull us out of our posturing, to invite us in to the deepest parts of our story. The parts we keep hidden, the parts we think are not allowed or welcome, the parts that make us hard for us to love ourselves, to see ourselves as you see us. So, forgive us for carrying around a bad image of you. Forgive us when we have learned to hate ourselves and then to turn that hate word outward. Forgive us for not believing when you said that we belong. And for all of our friends here who feel at the edge of true belonging, invite them in a step closer. God, we love you. And love when we notice you've been with us all along. Hear our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.